Today is the day. Yes, it is. Today is voting day. And if you live in the United States. If, if you it's live not, in the US. it's a Tuesday. <laughs> if it's not, it's Tuesday, November 6th. But I know a lot of our listeners are in the U.S., and I know we've been talking about this midterm election for a long time. We have. It's an important one. And today's one. the day. It's a, I mean, all elections are important. All elections but... are important, and I think now we're in a position where there's going to be more turnout at the midterm election than there was in 2014. God, I hope so. And... We love you guys. We know that y'all support a lot of the same things we do. We know y'all are um, probably just really excited like we are today. And just please go vote. You have this right. Not everyone in this world does. I know some of our listeners can understand that as well. Yeah. So Americans out there, take advantage of this. Vote. Go to the polls. Make sure your voice is heard. It's really easy to find information uh, as to what's going to be on the ballot. Yes. Just go check out your, your county. Yeah, your county page will usually have like a sample ballot of what's on this year. And um, some will actually go in. You can find some pretty unbiased uh, websites. I will say when looking at the candidates and the things to vote on, do your due diligence. Make sure you're not just looking at biased sources. But gosh, today's the day. Um, or uh, if you're listening to this after... And voted. Thank you so much. Yes. Oh, God. But anyways, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Tyler. And I'm Brittany. And this... um, This is episode 26. Yes, it is. And last week's episode was Halloween episode. Yes. I really enjoyed that one. Um, And today being election day is essentially Halloween part two. The the actual scary Halloween is today. (laughs) (laughs) gosh but one thing i just have to say this year has gone by so fast i know like, i cannot believe we're into november now i know and just when i look back at what this year was so much has changed in just the past 11 months yeah i mean january 1st of the year i was living in seattle i was working for a different company in a totally different role and it was so different and now i'm like in austin survived the summer loving my job god i love it (laughs) yeah well in my year while i didn't start out in a different city i was also at a different company so i've transitioned companies around the same time that you did Mm -hmm. and i think we're both in such a better place than we were i i mean just very much emotionally and everything Mm -hmm. this year has been a year of growth and realization and it's been real positive yeah for all of the just fucked up shit that's been going on 2018 has been personally pretty good yeah i agree i agree Um, i've had a lot of personal realizations throughout this year which have been really important and it's making Mm -hmm. me really really excited for 2019 and then of course i make 2019 my bitch well i mean yeah and of course this podcast was born in 2018 it was it was completely like idea and all yeah this has completely changed our lives and i look forward to more to come like what's what's coming next year me too god we should do some kind of recap something since we have an episode that drops january 1st 2019 it's true uh we should do some kind of recap something 
I like it. So. Anyway, um, just a hot, quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Yes, we are. So hop on over there, and if you want to donate, you can get access to our murder minis, random drink recipes we seem to be doing, because I think we're doing a a special drink for most holidays, and we'll always provide that recipe on our Patreon. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes it's on other social, but mostly Patreon. And there, there are just some drink recipes I have. We, I know we want to do like an, a fun mold wine. I have an amazing recipe for yep. that yep. that I got from a friend who lives in France. It's her family's recipe. Might have mentioned this before, actually, but I'm excited to do that. We have a couple other things in mind. Definitely check it out. Yeah. And huge shout out to all of our Patreon subscribers. Yes. Um, thank y'all so much. Y'all are helping us out more than words can describe. Yeah. And because of your support, more exciting things are coming uh, before the end of the year and then also into 2019. We just have some really big things in the works. Uh, something you're going to hear about very, very soon. Next week. Next week. Next we week will... we have a big announcement. We do. Big announcement next week. So be sure to listen to the episode on November 13th. We yes. have something Something major. Really excited to tell you guys about. (laughs) Uh, And just to make sure that you are able to listen to us right when we come out and able to get notified whenever we release our new episodes, make sure that you are subscribed on iTunes, follow us on Spotify, on um, SoundCloud. I mean, any of the podcast platforms, whatever your favorite one is, we're there. We're there. I know we have quite a few listeners who listen to us on just so many platforms that I can't even mm-hmm. think of what they are. But so just make sure to subscribe, follow us. We do release all of our new episodes every Tuesday, uh, every Tuesday at midnight central time us. Well, I know we're a few weeks behind on this, We are, but making a murderer season two is out. Which, and I'd love, we haven't finished it yeah, yet. We're a I, little bit slow because, um, so as of the time of recording this, I'm only on episode one of the second season. Yes. Um, we will... I just finished episode one, so okay, see, not like I'm ahead of you. We're going to definitely have binged it by the time this episode goes live. So Yes, probably. I am so excited. So Making a Murderer was the first like true crime documentary that I can remember that gripped like the nation. Like instantly oh yeah huge when it was like you would talk to anyone and everyone Mm -hmm. regardless of the topic because normally true crime wasn't something you would talk so openly about no but when that dropped on netflix and everyone started watching it like it was all people talked about oh i remember we went home for christmas and the entire family was we were all talking about it it was crazy and it was also one that i remember feeling very passionate while watching it being like oh my god, they're both innocent. How could they do this? Like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, you know, thinking about it more, talking with more people and doing some more research, being like, hmm, I don't know, actually. I kind of feel like he did it. Granted, my opinion, of course. Well, and that's the same for me. I binged it with um, a friend over, like, New Year's Eve, New Year's Mm -hmm. Day, and... We watched it and we were just outraged. We were like, oh my gosh, their evidence was planted. They're totally innocent. Like, why are they doing this? He was wrongfully convicted for a previous case. And then when we did our 
research, Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I think he did it. Although I do still feel that Brendan Dassey was so, so strongly coerced into a confession. Absolutely. And like, there's so much about that situation that I, I, makes me so mad. Yeah. But, but, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what season two brings. I know. And, um, so I'm sure we're going to be talking about this on Twitter. Again, you may have already seen, like, what we're talking about before this yeah. is posted. But, uh, but if you haven't watched it, highly, highly recommend. Always recommend it. Making a Murder if you're into true crime because it's a fucking roller coaster. And I would be completely, t- just being honest, I'd be surprised if you're listening to this podcast and haven't already watched season one. That is true. But season one's on Netflix still, too. Yes. So be sure and check that out before you hop into season two. Otherwise, I assume season two will not make sense. Fair. Because it's t- ten episodes, the yeah, first season? Yeah, each, each is ten episodes. Okay, and the second's ten. And they cram so much information into those ten oh, episodes. Yeah. If you liked the um, the staircase, which was one we've talked about a couple... A handful of episodes ago, we talked about Staircase. And it's done by the same people. Yeah. And honestly, I think just the filming and everything of Make a Murderer is much better than Staircase. Yeah, I didn't like Um, how it was done as much on Staircase. Like, that was a really good one, but Making a Murderer was more gripping. Yes. Like, it kept kept my attention even during some of the lulls that weren't as interesting. I was still, like, completely into it. Yes. Yes, it did. So, So with that, that actually really leads into our topic super well. Yes, it does. So, our topic this episode is wrongfully convicted murders. Or people who were just wrongly convicted of these murders. And, God, diving into this gave me flashbacks to college. I was like, "Mm, I remember writing my capstone on this. Um, I still hate that you don't have that paper anymore because I want to read it so bad. I'm so mad, but because it was on my computer. Did you never print a version that was ever put in like the school's library? I have no idea. You should, honestly, it's a phone call. Yeah. I would call or email the library and just be like, hey, this is super random, but do y'all have records of everyone's capstones? I know. Yeah, because that would be that would be amazing if I could find it. And I would love to be able to share it with our listeners. I mean, granted, it's an academic paper, but I'm really proud of it. Yeah. But um, so this, I, I picked this topic because I was like, I can't believe we haven't done this yet. I know. I'm very surprised we made it to this episode yeah. without doing it. Because we talk about it all the time. Oh, yeah. And it's so... Hugh, just the entire miscarriage of justice of it all is insane. So to, I wanted to dive into the topic a little more. And um, I actually have some sources for this. I use PNAS, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Did you not realize that? No, that's the first time I said it out loud. <laughs> which is the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United <laughs> States of America, Death Row USA, Spring 2018. Oh, damn. From the Criminal Justice Project of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Northwestern University Law, and the Sentencing Project. You found some, like, a lot of yeah. sources. Yeah. Uh, so, in their 2014 paper... Rate of false conviction of criminal defendants who are sentenced to death. Samuel R. Gross, Barbara O'Brien, Chen Hu, and Edward H. Kennedy 
mm-hmm. showed through data and survey modeling that a conservative estimate of those that are currently on death row that are innocent numbers at least 4.1% or 1 in 25. That is so many. Yeah. And 1 they, in 25 people one in on, 25 death row on death row are innocent. Are innocent. And Jeez. they, this, so if death row was indefinite, if these people had an indefinite amount of time to clear their names, minimum 4.1% of them would be exonerated. Oh my gosh. So to put that into perspective, as of today, there are 2,698 inmates on death row in America, which means, according to their model, at least 111 innocent people are set to die and are, at this moment, waiting execution for a crime they did not do. That's terrifying. And what's adding to the terror is that that's just death row. That's not even talking about people who are in prison who are innocent. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I jump into that in a sec because I wanted to see what those numbers look like. Yeah. Horrifying. So yeah. right now, at least 39 executions have been carried out in the U.S. in face of compelling evidence of innocence or serious doubt about guilt. And while innocence has not been proven in any specific case... There is no reasonable doubt that some of these executed prisoners were absolutely innocent. And I do want to say right now, it's important to point Mm -hmm. out that the number is certainly much, much higher. So the groups that devote the time and resources into proving innocence and exonerating these individuals are a lot more likely to focus what they can on people that are currently awaiting execution and right. people that can actually be saved. Because once someone's yeah, executed, yeah. you know, it it is important to clear their name, but it's more important to try to save a person's save life. Save a life. Save a life. I absolutely understand that. So those statistics are just for those on death row. But if we apply the same statistic to the 162,000 people oh, that are currently God. serving a life sentence in the U.S., so not death row there, but they're in for life, then there would be a minimum of 6,642 people who are going to spend the rest of their lives in prison for something that they did not do. You know, this topic is eerily fitting for today being Election Day. Yeah. And... I mean, criminal justice reform is huge, and it's one of the issues that I am most passionate about. Yeah, yeah. Because of these people that are in prison and innocent or are in prison for these sentences that are way longer than they have any right to be, the vast majority of them are people of color Yeah, that have been targeted for generations. It's true. It's true. And it's to, to me, criminal justice reform is like one of the biggest civil rights injustices of our time. Yes, yes, I 110% agree. I will say, if if listening to this episode, if we can influence at least one person to go out there and vote, then I think we've done our due diligence. Absolutely. This whole episode is worth it. I mean, I mean, I'll yeah. I'll say that. Oh, it, absolutely. Well, um, and if you're if you're listening to this, you know, on your way to work or whatever, you know, see if if you if you're able to leave work and go vote, or yeah. you know leave early or whatever get a group of your coworkers together get yes. everyone to go to the polls because i know there are a lot of people that 
you know, if someone says, oh, let's go as a group, are going to be a lot more likely to say, yeah, I'm going, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Well, and we're both, um, we both put together groups to go for early mm-hmm. voting this year. Yes. And that was just a lot easier in, in Austin, you know, huge city, mm-hmm. decided to go get our voting done before it was officially election day and lines are even longer. Yeah. So, um, yeah, group, get a group together. It is never too late. Most polls are open until like 7 p.m., I believe. Yeah. On election day. It, de- it depends. Uh, some of them are open later, but I think 7 p.m. is the usual cutoff. I think so, too. But be sure and check your yes. local district and see what they are. And, and, and I'm sorry, I went from topic back to voting, but it just seemed to it, it fit. It did. It absolutely did. Um, but yeah, so this topic is fucking, I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of pages of research into um wrongful convictions and just the the horrors and just the shit that these people go through yeah that have been convicted for something they didn't do is just well and there horrible. are there are so many programs put together right now to help mm-hmm. research these cases like there's mm-hmm. the innocence project and yes. and I know a lot of states have a project that mm-hmm. that is geared towards wrongfully convicted felons. And whether it's, you know, there's the death row, there's people who are in there for life, there are even wrongful convictions of rape and mm-hmm. um, just arson, like literally everything. Yeah. And there are people out there who dedicate their lives to r- resolving that and getting yeah. people um, exonerated. And if if you're really passionate about this, check out the Innocence Project. They have volunteer yes, stuff. Yes, you They're, can absolutely volunteer. You can absolutely be be part of this change and help save these people's lives. It's a perfect volunteer thing for people to go in. There are a lot of us who are web sleuths, essentially, mm-hmm. and that are very dedicated to true crime and that is a way that you yourself can actually do something to make a change so if you've got the time and the desire check out volunteer opportunities with the innocence project they are always wanting people's help with that let's get into the wine yes i need a glass so this week's wine is a special wine yes it's a very special wine this episode's wine is being sponsored by our Patreoner, Dawn, yes. who's a Cabernet Sauvignon convict. And you might recognize her name because Dawn actually directed our episode last week, our Halloween episode. Yes. So Dawn has gone above and beyond. Um, she reached out to us wanting to sponsor this week's wine, and it was very fitting that one of the wines yes. that she was talking to us about and then we messaged back and forth about is one that we have both been wanting to try for yes. a long time. And so the wine we're doing in today's episode is the Freak Show Cabernet Sauvignon from 2015. Mm. And this one, if you've seen it in the store, has such a fun label with so many hidden things throughout it. I feel like I could study this label forever. Oh, so it's yeah. like it's like a carnival and you can see just all of these different people throughout it. Like there are clowns, there are pigs. I'm looking at it right now. There's a lot of just like regular or old men. There's a monkey with a top hat on. There's the guy that has like the werewolf syndrome where he grows hair everywhere. So it's like, it's the freak show and it's the, yeah. the people at the circus that are supposedly the 
the freaks. Um, like this big tattooed lady. Um, Freak. <laughs> Women with tattoos. There's a snake with a human head. Oh, it's I don't quite like interesting. That one it's quite interesting. But if you look at also on the bottle, there's part of it that looks like a ticket to a mm-hmm. circus, which is really cool. This wine is from the Michael David Winery, which is a winery out of Lodi, California, that always stands apart from the crowd, whether it's their outlandish brands like Freak Show and then their packaging. It's it's always showing their very quirky personalities. Yeah. Oh, I just realized on the border it says Freak Show, Freak Show, Freak Show, Freak Show. That is so cool. But um, Michael and David, they're definitely on a stage of their own. uh, And this wine showcases their just what makes them them. The fruit for this wine comes from the original Super Freak himself, the Michael Phillips Cabernet Sauvignon Vineyard, which is located just like right next to the Michael David Winery. Mm. So some of the tasting notes for this one super excited about this it's becoming one of michael david's most sought after wines and a lot of that has to do with the flavor of it so there the cab is very midnight in color Mm. medium in body so it's not a super heavy cab okay there's a myriad of french oak influence aromas accompanied by toasted hazelnuts and blackberry cobbler so you know how i like my cabs and this one is sounding like Uh, everything i want in a cab i'm so into this toasted hazelnut i know there are flavors of ripe mission figs and hints of clove and cinnamon Mm -hmm. and they it it gives way to some velvety tannins that are balanced by the acidity of dark ripe fruits oh my god open this bottle so this one could quite possibly be one of our favorites uh yeah just so far description wise As far as cabs go, yeah. I can't think of a better cab description. Yes. And, um, John, I hope you are opening your bottle right now as well. Yes. So, we are sharing this with you. All right. Wow, that is a dark cork. It is a very dark cork. And it's got the Michael David Winery on it. And it's got their little seal. That is dark. Very dark wine. I love it already. Oh my gosh. I feel like I haven't had wine in so long. It's been like three days. Very strong smell. It does have a, dr- a very strong smell. Granted, we did just open it, so. Yeah. It's breathing a little bit. Um, it's breathing. <laughs> it's, it's The freak show is breathing. Well, and I also thought this one happens to be very fitting for. Cat hair in my wine. <laughs> This one also happens to be very fitting for the freak show that is our country on election day. So okay, yeah. I'm just going to connect everything to everything. I will let you do it. This episode is just falling into place. but It is. Okay. All right. Cheers to Dawn. Cheers to Dawn. Dawn, again, thank you so much for sponsoring this wine. And we are really excited to share it with you. So cheers. Cheers. Oh... My God. Mm. Yes. That is everything. You really get that oaky, the velvety. Velvety is exactly what this is. But I taste all these different flavors. That is not your normal cab. No, this is a good good. cab. Oh, and it's more oaky and that toasted hazelnut than Mm. it is fruity, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, that's what I love. And for the next uh, 40 minutes, we're just going to sit here and drink these bottles and make yummy noises.
Yeah. Well, we've got our wine. We do. You've talked about our theme. I have. And so I'm going to jump into my case. Do it. So the sources I used for this one were Wikipedia, Suspended Justice, which is actually a website for uh, that was created for a student who wrote a paper about this case. Ooh. And WDRB, which is a news station. So for my wrongful conviction, this is about the case of David Cam. This happened on September 28th in 2000 in Georgetown, Indiana. Mm -hmm. David lived with his wife, Kim, who was 35 years old, and their two young children, Brad, who was seven, and Jill, who was five. Okay. David was tried three separate times for the murder of the three of them. Oh. After 13 years in prison, a jury set him free. Jesus. This case has divided a family, Kim's family and David's family. It's divided them forever. And it nearly bankrupt the county with how many times this kept going to court. Taxpayers were spending so much money on it. Jesus. And it also forced the community to question, you know, the meaning of justice in their city. absolutely. So... The Cam family lived in Georgetown, Indiana, which was just this quiet town right outside of North Albany. Mm-hmm. Kim was a financial analyst, and her husband, David, had recently resigned from the Indiana State Police. Okay. The children spent their days at Graceland Christian School. Brad was in second grade. Jill was in kindergarten. And twice a week, they spent their afternoons with Kim's parents. Mm-hmm. So this is just a very tight-knit family. Yeah. Living their... Life just every day is wonderful. Like just little, like a small storybook family. family. Storybook family. Yes, yeah. thank you. That's the phrase I was searching for. When they weren't at home, they were at the Georgetown Community Church, which was a structure and congregation that was built by Cam's grandfather oh. and led by his uncle. And Kim was the treasurer. So again, wow, super tight knit in their community. Yeah. On the night of September twenty eighth, two thousand. Cam was out playing basketball at the church while Kim took Jill to dance class and Brad to swim practice. About like 7.30, Kim drove the kids home. Yeah. A couple hours later, Cam left the gym uh, with the rest of the basketball players after their their games that they were playing. At 9.29, police got a frantic call. Mm -hmm. David Cam was on the line and he's screaming, get everyone out to my house. My wife and kids are dead. Oh, my God. And he's saying this to his old, like, yeah, colleagues. His, yeah, these are the people he used to work with. They yeah. know him. So, I think because of the fact that, like, that's where he used to work, he called them directly instead of calling 911. He's like, just fucking come out here. Yeah. When the officers arrived, they found um, David extremely distraught um, at the threshold of this very gruesome scene. Kim and Brad were sprawled on the garage floor, bleeding. Jill was still in the back of the Ford Bronco, shot in the head. Oh, my God. Kim was in her underwear, and her shoes were on top of the trunk. Mm. Cam told police that when he pulled into the driveway, he looked and saw Kim on the garage floor just sprawled out under the truck's open passenger door, which is blood pooling around her head. Oh, my God. He, he runs out of his car. He's frantically searching for the kids. That's when he finds Jill slumped behind the passenger seat. Her face was covered by her blonde hair that was wet with blood. And beside her, Brad, his son, again, seven, um, and Jill was five. Brad was shot in the chest, draped over the back seat like he was trying to get away. 
Oh, God. Cam said his son felt warm, so he climbed over the passenger seat, reached across the center console, pulled Brad out, places him on the floor in the garage, and he's trying to administer CPR. Yeah. He did this for several minutes. He couldn't save him, and that was when he ran inside to call the police. Yeah. Test results later revealed there were eight specks of Jill's blood on Cam's shirt. And investigators said the pattern was consistent with blowback from a gunshot. Okay. So this is the big piece of evidence in the case. Is yeah. her blood, uh, these little eight specks on his shirt. Yeah. The medical examiner said Jill had blunt force trauma to the genitals consistent with molestation and or, or a, a straddle fall. So this was the young girl, the five-year-old. Yeah. Um, uh. It likely occurred within 24 hours of her murder. This is when suspicions regarding Cam's behavior that night started to raise questions. Yeah. Like, why'd he call the police instead of 911? Why would he try to give Brad CPR and not try to help his wife and his daughter? I mean, I I guess. feel like these questions are easily answered. Yeah. In that... Obviously, he, he called... them directly because he yeah. knows them. And if his son still felt warm, then... Yeah. And of course he's going to try to administer CPR and maybe he felt the others and they they were, were cold. cold. Yeah. So, the Sunday after the murders, Cam sat in the pews with family and friends and, and he wept. Mm-hmm. For 4 hours, they listened to his uncle preach and console. So this was not this wasn't the funeral, this was a church service that yeah. Sunday. And when the service was done, news crews of course confronted Cam and the family right outside the church. God. And Cam's older brother, a guy named Donnie, said he remembered how the community convicted Cam almost immediately after this interview. They said he wasn't crying. Um, and Donnie said he, he had he was empty. He had nothing left. Like, we, we were all empty. There yeah. were no more tears left to cry. He had cried yeah. them all. And just... God. Yeah. That afternoon, Cam was called in for more questioning, and he was charged with three counts of first-degree murder. The funeral was days later. Police would not let him go. God. To his own family's family's funeral. funeral. Yeah. The night before, the police took him to the church around, like, midnight. Fifteen different officers escorted him inside, handcuffed and shackled, so he could see their bodies. They gave him five minutes to say goodbye to all three of them. That's fucked up. That is so fucked up. It is. This case was so crazy. There are so many twists and turns. And like I said at the beginning, he ends up being convicted three times. Yeah. So the first trial, there were 11 basketball players from the night because Cam, you know, he was playing with them. One of them was his uncle, Sam Lockhart. And they all testified that they did not see Cam leave the gym nor did they notice any odd behavior, blood, like nothing out of yeah. the ordinary on his clothes or about his demeanor that night. However, nearly a dozen women testified to Camp's character, describing sexual encounters they had with him or instances where they propositioned them. And the state argued that all of these different affairs that he was apparently having, mm. cheating on Kim, coupled with the molestation allegations of Jill, were plausible motive for killing all three of them. Which is, yeah, that's a fair conclusion. It is. It's a fair conclusion. That was uh, the direction the prosecution was taking. Yeah. 
prosecution also had blood pattern experts that said the eight specks of Jill's blood on Cam's t-shirt could only have gotten there from gunshot blowback. Yeah. And they theorized that Cam left the gym during the one game that night he didn't play in, shot his family, and returned before anyone noticed he was gone. Um, okay. That... Even though all 11 said they never saw him leave. Yeah. Cam actually testified in his own defense, and his attorneys argued that Jill's blood on his shirt must have been transferred when he was in the truck reaching for Brad. Mm-hmm. Just trying to revive him. Regardless, uh, he was found guilty and sentenced to 195 years in prison in 2002. Damn. So, of course, Cam appealed. Yeah. And then two years later in 2004, the Indiana Supreme Court overturned his conviction, noting that the state did not had not adequately proven his infidelity as a motive for murder. Yeah. There wasn't enough evidence about it. And they also warned that the next judge in the trial... Um, about allowing the molestation accusations, saying it could lead to another reversal because there's not there evidence yeah. to prove it. Yeah. So a new county prosecutor refiled the charges against Cam, but also announced that his office would launch a fresh eyes investigation. So they're looking through the evidence, like redoing this entire investigation for the yeah. second trial. Investigators found unidentified DNA from a sweatshirt. That had been found under Brad. It was finally tested nearly five years after the murders. So oh. it had never been tested in that first trial. Yeah. And there was DNA found on this sweatshirt to a man named Charles Boney, who was an 11-time convicted felon oh. with a foot fetish. So he'd been dubbed the shoe bandit for assaulting women in Bloomington, stealing their shoes back in the, the 80s. Yeah, the shoe bandit is uh not that fucked up of a I would I would have picked a different one. Calling someone the shoe bandit, that's not a fucked up enough name for this guy. Especially because he's like rapist, assaulting maybe. Them. Yeah, or, like bandit just makes it sound like he's going in and stealing shoes. Yeah, I'm not, like, did he bust up into a payless and like That would be the shoe bandit. This is the shoe rapist. Yeah. So Boney had a history of stalking and attacking women, stealing their shoes. Kim's shoes had been found on the top of the vehicle. Yeah. She also had a series of bruises and abrasions all over her feet. Oh. The prosecution was widely criticized for their failure to find Boney prior to the first trial. And they told the defense team in 2001 that they did run the DNA through CODIS and it returned no matches. So they just lied. They just fucking lied because it was later discovered that Boney's DNA was entered into the system prior to the murders because he's an 11-time convicted felon. And so if they had run the DNA through CODIS, it would have returned a match. And, like, everything would have been different. Did this guy have any relation to the family at all? Why was his DNA on a sweater in the car? Not to my recollection. At all. He was a complete outsider in this situation. Okay. But, like I said, this was in trial two that that DNA evidence came out. God. To add to this, this sweatshirt was a Department of Corrections sweatshirt. Oh. And then on the inside of the collar was the word backbone, which was a name that Boney had acquired when he was in prison. Oh, my God. They literally didn't look into this sweatshirt at all. No, because it is... Literally his. Basically, unless he had a name tag on it that said, please return to Charles Boney. 
which he essentially did, yeah. considering it had his nickname in it. God. But his uh, handprint was also found on Kim's Bronco. He had been released from prison just months before the murders after serving 11 years for holding three female students hostage at gunpoint. What the fuck? In the, their Bloomington apartment. So that's that's why he was in prison Jesus. before. During all of the interrogations, Booney first claimed that he did not know Cam or his family, and he told investigators that somebody must have planted his sweatshirt at the scene. And then when detectives were like, then why is your handprint on the vehicle? Booney backtracked. And in a written statement, he said he met Cam a couple of months before the murders at a basketball game, ran into him again at a convenience store later on, and Booney said that Cam asked him to buy a gun. And they made a deal. Cam asked for another gun. So they made the deal. What? And the two arranged to meet the night of September 28th, 2000 at Cam's home. Boney says he gave Cam the gun wrapped in the sweatshirt. So that's how the sweatshirt got there. Then Boney says he hears Cam shoot his wife and kids. Prosecutors argued that the men worked together and charged both with the murders. Okay. Their trials ran simultaneously but in different courtrooms on opposite sides of the state. So they're not yeah. they're not together. Uh, the same prosecutor tried both of the cases, arguing in one courtroom that Cam pulled the trigger and in the other courtroom that Boney helped. Boney was convicted and sentenced to 225 years in prison for his um, involvement in the murders. Damn. These conspiracy charges were dropped against Cam, but not against Boney. Oh. So in Boney's trial, the prosecution didn't have to prove who pulled the trigger, just that both of them were somehow involved. Yeah. That's weird. I know. In Cam's trial, the prosecutors this time argued that his motive was not the infidelity, but the molestation. And they said that Jill, his daughter, told Kim, his wife, and Kim threatened to leave Cam... Didn't the previous judge warn them not to try the molestation angle? Yep. Okay. Cam was found guilty again. Yeah. But just like last time, the Indiana Supreme Court overturned the verdict because they said there was no proof that he molested his daughter. Yeah. So you're exactly right. So I do not know why prosecutors went that angle again when they were explicitly told that's not going to work. Yeah. But what happened in the second trial is Boney was discovered... And Bunny was sentenced to 225 years in prison. Yeah. Did the Supreme Court just overturn Cam's case? Yes. Okay. The third trial began in August 2013. Oh, wow. And again, just like the first two, the judge prohibited any testimony about Cam's affairs or molestation allegations. Yeah. He would not allow the defense to mention Bunny's foot fetish either. He just didn't want any of those things in this. Prosecutors focused on Jill's blood that was on Cam's t-shirt. Yeah. And the defense argued that the basketball players were his alibi and that he had never left the game. Yeah. The defense said that his arrest was a result of a botched investigation and a prosecutor who had tunnel vision, who never looked at any other people. Yeah. Especially during the first trial. That's what it sounds like, yeah. During this third trial, Boney testified against Cam. Oh, Officers escorted Boney into the courtroom. His hands and ankles were shackled. He's wearing the DOC jumpsuit because, again, he's in prison yeah. for his involvement in the murders. 
And then Cam entered the room and the two like locked eyes and they didn't blink or anything. Yeah. Bonnie testified that he handed Cam the gun at his home in that, on that night in 2000. Mm-hmm. Cam pulled into the garage. Cam followed her up the driveway. They started arguing. Bonnie says he heard a pop and then a boy yelling, Daddy, followed by another pop and then a third pop. Bonnie said Cam emerged from the garage, turned the gun on him and tried to shoot, but the gun jammed. Bonnie then said Cam ran towards the house. Bonnie chases him into the garage, but Cam disappears inside. During this pursuit, Bonnie says he tripped and fell over Kim's shoes. That's why he picked him up and placed him on top of the vehicle. So no one else would do the same. You know, what? he's trying to catch this guy for some fucking reason that supposedly shot his family. And he doesn't want anyone else to trip on the shoes. So he picks him up and puts him on top of the vehicle. Also, where is this gun? I don't know. Because... Everything I read, nothing talked about finding... So there is a severe lack of evidence in this case. Yeah, obviously. there is. And the evidence that was found was not properly... Like, the, the sweatshirt, it wasn't properly examined. And there's there's even more coming. Oh, God. So, Boney then says he did not touch any of the victims and he, like, fled the scene. Yeah. But then, like, his credibility was called into question because... He could not describe the car that Cam drove that night, nor what Cam was wearing. And evidence was also presented that Boney's DNA was found on Kim's underpants, shirt, broken off fingernail, Jill's shirt. So this all is suggesting yeah. that he attacked the family himself. And obviously he did touch them, unlike what he had just testified to. Yeah. So the de- defense witnesses also testified about the stains that were found on Jill's shirt. Mm-hmm. And that the assertions made were not widely accepted by others in the bloodstain analysis field. Yeah. This was when it was discovered that the blood spatter analyst, Rob Stites, mm-hmm. whose, like, his analysis is what triggered the original yeah. arrest. He's the one saying these eight droplets mean you shot the gun. Yes. Yeah. His credentials had been falsified. Oh! He did not work in the field of bloodstain pattern analysis at all. What the... Who the fuck is this guy, then? He had previously testified he was a professor at Portland State University. He had no affiliation with the university. Oh, my God. He testified for the defense in the third trial, and that's when he admitted that he perjured himself in the first two trials. Did he... What did he have to gain from this? What... Why do any of this? I don't know. He was actually an office assistant for a crime scene analyst, and... He had been sent to the crime scene to take photos, and that's when he started voicing his opinions on the evidence. Are so you... he's literally just someone who, I don't know if he wanted to shoe in or, or what. God, because people that falsify evidence, especially people who are, like, within law enforcement or within, like, the medical examiners or the evidence examiners, yeah. falsifying that, like... What the fuck is wrong with you? You're going to put an innocent person away for life. For be- what? Yeah, for what? You're for not what? You're not getting anything out of this. Well, and Stite said that the prosecutor is the one who fabricated his credentials for the trial. What the for one fuck? And two. Yeah. So another man, Dr. Rob Stoller, served on a committee for the National Academy of Sciences. He evaluated the forensic methods and testified that the blood spatter pattern analysis was found to be unreliable. Yeah. And then another expert, 
demonstrated that the pattern that was found on Cam's shirt of mm-hmm. Jill's blood could have been produced through transfer, which is yeah. exactly what that's what the he said was happened. saying yeah. was happening. Additionally, during this third trial is when Investigating Innocence, which is a non-for-profit organization similar to the Innocence Project. Mm-hmm. This was the first time they were involved. Bill Clutter, who was the guy that started this Investigating Innocence Project, mm-hmm. he was a member of Cam's defense team yeah. and suggested conducting an animated crime scene reconstruction for the jury mm-hmm. so that they could see exactly what happened and so there were a lot of students at the university of indiana that helped clutter um and the rest of the defense team review the case and provided fresh set of eyes again the third fresh set of eyes god so clutter simulated how the actual killer bony braced his left hand leaving the palm print on the outside of kim's ford bronco as he knelt on the floorboard Extending his right hand out to fire the gun that killed Jill and Brad. Oh, like so he's like bracing himself and shooting them with the other hand. Jesus. So on the day of closing arguments, the courtroom was full. Yeah. Like there are just people everywhere. The prosecutor called Cam a murderer and showed the the jurors photos of Kim, Brad, and Jill. The defense attorney reminded the jury of the 18 different cuts and bruises that were on Kim's body, saying that she fought long and hard and she fought for her children. Yeah. Jurors deliberated for only 10 hours. Oh, that's short. It's very short. Cam was found not guilty of all charges. And the result was an acquittal and he was released. Oh my God. Boney remains in prison, still serving his 225-year sentence for the murders. However, to this day, he maintains that he is innocent. Additionally, this was the very first exoneration for the Investigating Innocence Project. Oh, my God. So they helped out. It was their first, or um, Cam was their first exoneree. And then a few years after Cam was freed, he sued the police and some of the state's experts $30 $30 million in damages for his unlawful investigation, arrest, and imprisonment. Yeah. absolutely. However, a judge has dismissed his federal civil rights case in 2018. So earlier this year, the case was dismissed. Oh. Cam, why? They just said no. Um, Cam, of course, is going to appeal. Yeah. However, like, he did not end up completely empty-handed because in 2013, his suit against the Floyd County and several state employees was partially resolved with a $450,000 settlement. I mean, cool. That is so weird. Not enough. No, no, no. It's nowhere near enough. He spent 13 years in prison. Family was murdered, and he found them, and you know this destroyed his reputation. Yes. Well, Kim's family is still convinced that he did it. Cam's family obviously has has been his defense and they've been yeah. his strength throughout these 13 years he was incarcerated. But Kim's family thinks he did it. God. So it, it completely broke apart family as yeah. he knew it in his life. You know, this case was one that was covered extensively by the media. There was um, a Nancy Grace did it, 48 hours, Dateline, it's a lot of it is because all of these extensive allegations about the prosecutorial misconduct. Yeah. There was like witness tampering, evidence tampering, perjury, mm. and the really shitty investigation. Like, so this really 
brought it to the forefront and it's it's detailed in numerous forensic textbooks. Yeah. That, absolutely. Like, have been written since then. Because I think this case did a lot in Indiana. Mm-hmm. So that's Fuck. the story of David Cam and how he was falsely accused of murdering his entire family. I just cannot and lost everything. He lost everything. Yeah. He lost his family. He lost Kim's family that was at this point a part of his. It was his family. Like and he, he lost, lost them, them too. He actually lost Kim and his children. And he lost how many years of his life? He was thirteen. In jail? Thirteen years of his 13 life. Thirteen years. When he got out And he lost his entire reputation. Like Yeah. When he got out, I think he was forty nine years old. God. And so he spent the latter part of his thirties and all of his forties in jail. Yeah. He God, I yeah. Okay. Well and it's it's interesting to me to hear about the different stories that Charles Boney created to yeah. cover the evidence and how, like, one of the parts that really stuck out to me because I felt like it was so clearly a lie. Because you know when someone's lying, they give too much detail? Oh, absolutely. When he said he tripped over the shoes and he picked them up and put them on the vehicle so no one else tripped over them. Yeah. I'm like, if you were literally chasing Cam because he just shot yeah. everyone and you're wanting to do something about that... You're not going to stop and pick up the shoes. Well, and even if he, like, that is exactly what happened, when recounting this, those are not going to be the details that he, that stick out to remember. Right. Well, and I I will say, it does become different when you're testifying because you are supposed to say, like, literally everything. Yeah. All the details. But that's one but of the But the way reasons. that story flowed, like, no. That's one of the big reasons why witness testimony so often is unreliable. Yes. Because... More often than not, completely unreliable. Yeah. I just cannot believe... I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on just everything that was taken away from him. I know. His entire life. I know. And so it's, it's one of those things where, yes, now he's out of prison, but what is he going back to? Yeah. I mean, granted... I, I mean, say that he has opportunity now, he absolutely and he didn't does. have that before. But when it comes to the fact that his family's gone, there's obviously this stigma around him now, who he is, and who the community thinks he is, and this divided line between people who think he did it and people who think he didn't. It's heartbreaking. It is, and this is with every single wrongfully convicted oh, felon case. Absolutely, like this is. I have these emotions about all of them. Well, and I think because that's... a lot of them were victims themselves and lost something. Well, exactly. And, and, I, and, and well, okay. They're victims because they were wrongfully convicted. Yeah, but in the but initial crime. Yeah, yeah, in the initial crime, they were victims then as well. Oh, and I just... I, I think that's why it's so horrifying, is that every single one of these cases, this person becomes a victim. Yeah, they do. And on that, I'm going to open the second bottle. Do it. You ready for more Freak Show? Yes, I am. This wine is amazing. It's so good. Don, literally, thank you, thank you, thank you. I know. I I will say, this is one I've really, really wanted to try for a long time. Yeah. But a little bit I was turned off by the label. It's very you kitschy think? and fun. Oh, I love it. I, oh, I think it's very fun, but I was worried that... That it wasn't going to be as good? Yeah. Because, because of the label? A like lot they of, put all the detail on the label. Yeah. Well, in all of the, not all, absolutely not all, but a lot of the fancier wines, and I think you were saying this a couple episodes ago, have 
a very, very basic simple label. simple label. And so when I saw this one, I was like, ooh, I don't know. Maybe they're trying to... Maybe they have to try because of the label. Although, after hearing what you said about the vineyard and the winery, I'm like, yeah, okay, now I get it. They're just fucking weirdos, and I love them. I want to look into more of their wines. Yeah. Because if they really are ones that stand apart from the crowd, I mean, I'm all about yeah. that. Well, yeah, and we didn't talk about this um, when you were introing the wine, but we didn't get this one from Trader Joe's or H-E-B, we actually went to this place called Total Wine. I cannot believe is, we didn't bring this up. I know. And to- Total Wine, mind-blowing. Literally, uh, it's amazing. the size of, like, a department store. Yes. But it's just wine and liquor, and the people there were so knowledgeable. I asked... They were so helpful. We asked yeah. so many questions. Well, because I, I was looking for... I was like, oh, my God, we're in a huge wine place. This is where I can find Norwegian Glog. Yep. And I've been looking for this forever. So the Glog I had in Norway, it's an apple wine that's spiced. Like, it's a mulled apple wine. Yeah. And it sounds perfect fucking for amazing. And Which even, I guess if it's always snowing and cold in Norway, it's perfect for there. It is. And it's definitely a winter drink in Norway, but it's so good. And even when I went to Polsbo, which is a Norwegian town oh, in yeah. Washington... Could not find it. Have you looked to see if there's a Norwegian town in Texas? I have not. I, I don't figure there would be, but I was just curious. I'm not sure. I would doubt it. I will say there's a huge uh, population of Norwegians and a bunch of Norwegian towns in like Minnesota and the Dakotas. So if any of our listeners are, you know, if you're Norwegian yourself, if you have access in these towns if they if you have a town that sells glog let me know yeah let us know venmo you yeah (laughs) we will absolutely venmo you because he talks about glog all the time and i really really want to try it and i think the stuff i got it was just at the vin monopoly which is the um the liquor store wine monopoly yeah yeah (laughs) interestingly norwegian is Closer to German, but it's almost like halfway between German and English. Yeah. And it has, also, I mean, a ton of, like, Swedish and Danish influences. Well, it's but... one of those languages, and I remember this when I was there visiting you. If you listen, you mm-hmm. can pick up on what people are saying. Oh, yeah. Like, you may not be able to understand by any means their full sentence, but mm-hmm. you can pick out a word here or there, and mm-hmm. it's like, oh, like I did right there with yeah. the V-Monopoly or whatever you said. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, why Monopoly? I got it. And... My roommate for my first semester there, he was from, I believe, Berlin. He was from Germany. I think he was from Berlin. Uh, but he didn't know any Norwegian. And it just, like, he got there and he was like, oh, yeah, no, I can do this. Because he was fluent in English and German. And he was like, yeah, I can figure it out. You remember that really, really cute cute French guy? Uh, yes, I do. Yes. Man. I loved him. That was awesome. And he was so nice. He was just so kind. He was so nice, so kind, and he cared about me when I got sick. I know. He was asking about you. Which, uh, god damn. It's not fair. The men in Europe, y'all amazing. I know. Men in America, I got some work to do. I know. For real, though. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay. But I know. We've, we've had a long enough intermission. We've got our second bottle. Yeah, I know, but I just... I needed that, like, lighter bit. Because these cases are so fucked up. And... They are. Oh, God. But now it's time to jump into my case. More heavy. Very heavy. 
All right. So what do you got for me? Mine is the murder of Holly Staker and the wrongful conviction of Juan Rivera. <gasps> oh my God. I almost picked this one. Okay. Well, I'm I didn't glad read you didn't. Any, I didn't read anything about it, but I saw Juan Rivera and I was like, I, I read like a little synopsis and I was like, oh my God. So yeah. Yeah. His, oh my God. So the sources I used, the people v. Rivera, the court case, Wikipedia, the Innocence Project, the Oh, Chicago- the Innocence Project! Mm-hmm. You used it! I used it for here. It was a big case for them. Oh my god. Well, um, I'm glad we talked about it at the beginning. Volunteer, you guys. Do it. Uh, the Chicago Tribune, Northwestern University Law, and the National Registry of Exonerations. On August 17th, 1992, police responded to a call in Waukegan, Illinois, after a woman who was living there, Dawn Engelbrecht, uh, reported that her babysitter, 11-year-old Holly Staker, was mm-hmm. missing. So she got oh. home. Oh, my God. The babysitter her was Her kids 11? are there. Yeah, babysitter's 11. The kids, I believe, were 2 and 5. So they're real young. And, I mean, 11-year-old babysitter, she's, like, in, what, 6th or 7th grade? Which I guess I get it. I'm sorry. It, this is just one of the first times in my life I'm thinking about the age of that. And I'm like, whoa, an 11-year-old babysitting? That's, like, kids babysitting kids. But mm-hmm. that's normal. But damn. I mean, yeah. So I think I babysat a, a baby when I was like 12. Ew. It was scary. Baby slept the whole time, thank God. It was probably, it felt like it was half a day. It was probably like an hour and a half. So Holly Staker, the babysitter, she's missing. Poor girl. Like Dawn comes home and what is it with me and the past two cases? Dawn. Dawn. <laughs> I'm sorry, Patreon Dawn. Your name just is amazing and wonderful, and we're seeking it out. So, Dawn Engelbrecht, uh, you know, she gets home. Kids are there. Babysitter's not. She's like, what the fuck? Oh, shit. And so, she calls the police. So, the back door of the apartment had been kicked in, and the police found Holly's partially clothed body (gasps) on the floor of the children's bedroom. She had been raped, stabbed 27 times. Oh, my God. And strangled. And she was pronounced dead at the scene. She's 11. She's 11. Baby. Oh, my God. So swabs taken from her tested positive for semen. And oh. evidence technicians took fingerprints and blood samples that were found in the bedroom and near the kitchen sink where it looked like someone had washed blood off of their hands. Yeah. God. Yeah. So that's the murder. And on September 29th of 92, so like the following month, like yeah. six weeks later, okay. uh, police received a tip from a prison inmate uh, that another inmate, 19-year-old Juan Rivera, believed that he knew who killed Staker. So according to this informant, Rivera told him that he was at a party the night near the crime scene and he saw a man acting suspiciously. Okay. So Rivera was described by police as friendly and cooperative when he was interviewed and he agreed to provide samples of his blood and hair. So he's the one that's just like, I saw this dude acting real weird. Yeah. So he told police that he's at a party near the crime scene when another man left the party more than once. And later returned sweaty, out of breath, and with a fresh scratch. Further investigation revealed there was no party at this residence on the 17th of August. (gasps) And so a lot more suspicion went to Rivera. 
okay. I mean, yeah. I, I I can see that. Yeah. I can see that. So investigators began focusing on Rivera, who was a former special education student and had a history of mental illness and had been recently convicted of a burglary, which is why at the time he was on an electronic home monitoring system with like an ankle bracelet and all that. Oh, okay. So during four days of questioning, uh, Rivera denied knowledge of the crime, but at the end of the fourth day, around midnight, after the interrogation had become just very accusatory, he broke down crying and nodded when asked if he had raped and killed Holly Staker. The interrogation continued until 3 a.m. when investigators left to type up this confession for Rivera to sign. Mm-hmm. A couple minutes later, jail personnel saw him beating his head against the wall oh, of God. his cell. Um, then they took him into a padded cell so he wouldn't be able to hurt himself right. in it. So about an hour after they took him into this padded cell, a nurse again found him just beating his head against the oh, wall. Oh, my God. He's speaking incoherently, and he's unaware on? of where he was. Yeah. So a little bit later, the same nurse looked in on him again and found him lying on the floor in the fetal position. And he actually pulled tufts of his hair from his scalp (gasps) with skin attached. Oh, my God. And it's like he's having a mental breakdown. Well, yeah, she concluded he's suffering a psychotic episode. Absolutely. It's like this psychotic episode was a response to what what's about to come. Yeah. And it I mean, he does have a history of mental illness. He was a special education student. Right. I mean, it's him having a psychotic break is not out of character. It's not, um, but it, it's like this triggered that. Absolutely. Like, it, this was a trigger. Absolutely. So, shortly after 8 a.m., investigators took the typed confession that they prepared oh to the padded cell where Rivera signed it. Oh, my God. Does he know what he's signing? I don't think so. I'm I'm just, especially in that state and after what he's going through. Oh yeah. Oh it. That he just seems that like he can't it be gets aware. Worse. Yeah. No. It gets worse. Your hashtag. I know for real though. So this document that they had typed up was so riddled with incorrect and just implausible information that the Lake like County things that didn't even happen. Yeah, things that didn't happen. Things that didn't make sense. Things. Yeah. Who the fuck wrote this? Um. Well, it was typed up from the confession that. That they got out. Oh, but it had all these inaccuracies. Yeah. So the Lake County State Attorney, uh, Michael Waller, told the investigators to go back in, resume the investigation in an effort to clear up these inconsistencies. (laughs) And despite Rivera's obvious fragile mental condition, this interrogation resumed at 11.30 a.m. God. And, about, and he was there in the padded cell that morning? Yeah. Or did it... That morning. Oh, this my all God. This over the course of, like, 24 hours. So, <laughs> about 90 minutes later, Rivera signed a second confession, which contained a more plausible account of the crime. Stop. Oh, my God. So, what... Uh, what happened, obviously, is that the investigators went in and were like, well, when you said this, did you actually mean this? Yes. Okay. Or whatever. To make like, it more that, plausible. Yeah. So, the state's attorney, Waller promptly called a press conference in which he told reporters that Rivera had been arrested and had made incriminating statements. And reporters even quoted investigators saying that Rivera knew details of the crime that had not been made public. 
Hmm. And neither interrogation session was recorded, although recording equipment was available. Yeah. Of course. The ones you need, they never record. This is why I, I do not understand the issue with law enforcement officers needing to be recorded. Because not in a we don't trust you kind of way at all. It's for everyone's yeah. safety to have these, to have body cams, to make sure that all these things are recorded. And I hear a lot of people against it being like, well, would you like to be recorded on every day at your job? I fucking am. I work in an office building. There's cameras everywhere. Yeah. Talk to any fucking retail worker and there's 10 cameras trained on them at all times. It's true. It, Does, much of us, when we were yeah. teenagers working our retail jobs, we're on camera. Literally every, every almost every that. job you're at, you're on fucking camera. Yep. And is it because your boss doesn't trust you? No, if they didn't trust you, you wouldn't work there. But that it's for, is such a valid point. It's for what if you do do something wrong? It should be caught. Or what if you're fucking robbed? What if something bad happens to you? That you evidence want it should to be, be there. And that's well, exactly how like body cam footage and shit. That's what the argument should be because if an officer is attacked. That information should be there. That visibility into what the fuck just happened should be right there. It should. And I almost think that I wish there were interrogation rooms where, like, essentially when the door is activated and, like, opened, Mm -hmm. the recording begins. And it's not, like, a man off on switch. Yeah. I wish it was, which sounds a little bit, like, robotic and whatever, like... But you know? no, that's totally but valid. But that's how it should be. Because there are officials out there who will do fucking wrong shit no, that's to thing. get a conviction. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, people, anyone should mm-hmm. not have the decision to turn that recording on or off. No. It should be an automatic, it is there, it is done. And to be completely honest, I am surprised this does yeah. not already exist. Oh, yeah. One of the best things, I think, to come out of the last five years is that nowadays you see so much more cell phone video because people oh, know do. how people are watching and they whip out the phone and yeah and if you if listeners if you ever see something going on that's not right fucking whip out your phone and get that evidence it's important make sure obviously make sure you are safe make yes. sure that you're make not sure putting you're yourself not in, in danger. danger but if you're able to and it's safe and smart that you do so whip out your phone Get that shit on video because, I mean, that evidence can save lives right there. Yes, it absolutely can save lives. So, jumping back in, Rivera was administered two different polygraph exams during his interrogation. Which, side note, polygraphs are not reliable. No! They haven't been for so long. Like, the fact that they're still used, mind-blowing. I I feel like the fact that they're still used is just for like a... It's like it's, a scare tactic. Yeah, it's, it's a so scare like, well, tactic. we know you lied. And then they confess, which is fucked up in its own way. I mean, they're used to get a confession, and that's all they are good for. But uh, the first polygraph test didn't wield any results. And the second indicated that there was some deception. You know, he was being untruthful during it. But it wasn't in regards to any of the questions regarding Holly's death. Yeah, it was the other stuff they were saying? Yeah. Hmm. Jumping into this, they have his signed confession, the second one that's more plausible. All the, like, more plausible, more details, yeah. And the jury trial begins November 1st of 1993, with the prosecution's case being based primarily on the second confession. Yeah. That thing he wrote. 
And on November 19th, the jury found Rivera guilty, and the prosecution asked for a death sentence. <gasps> the jury thankfully rejected it. Oh, God. And Judge Christopher oh, C. When the jury Stark, comes through. Yes. When the jury comes through. Oh, I know. But Judge Christopher C. Stark sentenced Rivera to life in prison. Then, November 9th, 1996, so just almost 10 days before three years of him being convicted, the Illinois Appellate Court reversed the conviction based on the cumulative effect of trial errors and remanded the case for a new trial. So they were saying, no, 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 no. This is not a just case. There are way too many errors in this trial. You need to redo it. Yeah. So on September 16th of 1998, Rivera's second jury trial began. Okay. Again, the prosecution primarily relied on the second confession, but it also produced an eyewitness to the murder who identified Rivera as the man who stabbed Staker. Oh, oh, just wait till this next sentence. Sorry, my face, y'all. My face. My face. It's like a what the fuck? It's, yeah. So this witness... Taylor Engelbrecht was one of the two children that Holly was babysitting at the time he was attacked and was only two years old. I'm sorry. So he identified him by what? Making a noise when he saw his photo? He was two years old at the time the attack happened. Now he's eight. I'm sorry. And he's saying Rivera is the one who did it. He was two. Raise your hand. I mean, if you're in public, that'll be weird. But just how many of you have literally any memories from when you were two? No. I, the earliest memory I have is from, I think I was four or five, and it's like vagueness. I know, yeah. You don't Mine's remember like things from when you're two. like a four-year-old blurry memory that I can't honestly tell you yeah. if it's a memory or if it's stories I've been told. Exactly. So, and when so, you're two, you're not going to remember anything. No! Also, I'm sure... In the six years between when it happened and when he's a witness, he's heard things about it on the media. And I'm sure he's been told so many times that that's the man that killed Holly. Like, it's just, it's been, it's been publicly known. So, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like, I'm sure there were plenty of people who thought that he was guilty and Taylor heard that. Yeah. And thought that to be true. Oh, Because he's eight. This is eyewitness testimony is not reliable. It's not. And I will say, we have talked both sides of it as we'll talk about how children are smarter than we give them credit. But that does not mean that an eight-year-old is able to properly testify. And identify In a fucking murder case. No. So on October 2nd of 98, after deliberating for 36 hours over the the past four days, the jury again found Rivera guilty. And Judge Stark again sentenced Rivera to life in prison. Oh my god. Same sentence. Jeez. On December 12th of 2001, the Illinois Appellate Court affirmed the second conviction. So they were like, okay, you got this the second time, we support that. Until May 24th of 2005... DNA tests eliminated Rivera as the source of semen recovered from Holly. DNA has solved so many wrongful convictions. So fucking many. Like, it is one of the things that, which I guess in the early 90s, DNA was not really a thing or it was brand new. Yeah. I don't know. It was. It was brand new technology and... 
you know, you heard it with the OJ case that we bring up every other episode, basically, which, you know, it was a science, but people were not really aware of it. So the jury didn't like get it. People didn't understand that DNA was unique to an individual. Well, that when you're like, we found these markers and they're like, oh, it's statistically likely that this is the killer. People don't understand that when science says something like that, they're not saying like, oh, there's like a 20% chance it's this guy. No, no, no. They're meaning like there's four in a billion. Yeah, There's literally 28 people in the world that could have done this. That could fit this profile. Yeah. It's this person. And that's one thing that always makes me so angry is when people confuse the vernacular theory to science. Yeah. Because a scientific theory is not a fucking, I think this happened. Like, gravity is a theory. Gravity's a thing, y'all. Like, it's not a, <laughs> it's, it's a not th- a theory. Hey, y'all, that's kind of been very much proven. Yeah. But, and then when scientists are, are gonna say, you know, they're not gonna say such and such is impossible or such and such never happened. They're going to say things like the evidence shows such and such very likely is what happened. And that means a lot different than just a normal person saying, like, oh, it's pretty likely that's what happened. Uh, it is. DNA versus witness. Because a scientist Sorry will tell to, you. Like, and, and I do not mean to discount witnesses. No. It's just that science is more of a proven thing than memory. Absolutely. And memory I, is science. I get that. But, but you can go you, into you the science of memory and trauma. And you see so much about how when there is a traumatic thing that you witness or that you go through, yeah. your brain distorts it. Well, and it's like my accident that we've talked about before. Yeah. I have no memory of it. And like, my memories are fabrications of what other people have told me and what I have thought maybe I possibly could have thought in the situation. Exactly. I have no real memories. And if you went to, if you for some reason had to describe moment by moment your accident in court... It, it wouldn't be correct. I would literally be like, well, I was eating Taco Bell, and then two weeks later, I woke up surrounded by people at the hospital. Because that is my memory. I had lunch at Taco Bell, and then I woke up in the hospital, and time had passed. Ugh. Yeah. So, on August 29th of 2006, Judge Stark himself vacated oh. Rivera's conviction and ordered a third trial. Because the oh DNA gosh. evidence. Yeah. He was like, nope, we're yeah. done. Third. And despite the DNA exclusion, state attorney Waller chose to retry this case. So the prosecution is going to go in a third time. Over- they're, they're thinking third time's the charm. Yeah. So over the objections from the defense, Judge Stark allowed the prosecution to advance two explanations for why the DNA exclusion did not prove Rivera's innocence. Right. Either the semen sample had been contaminated. Oh. Or the semen recovered from Holly's body was unrelated to the crime. Oh. Which, that is kind of sick to think about. But She's a 11, possibility. But, yeah. So, I'm just saying. I, that's true. I'm just Some people are advocate. sexually active at 11. Yeah. But, so the, this first explanation made no sense. Right. Because the DNA was from sperm cells. 
So the forensic witnesses testified that the contamination would have been detected. Right. And that only one male DNA profile was present. So if there was contamination, they would have found two, or it would have been from not sperm cells. Or inconclusive. Yeah. No. There was one dude, and it was from the sperm cells. Yeah. And it's not Rivera. Yeah. In regards to the second explanation, there was no evidence that Holly Staker had ever had sexual intercourse before she was raped and murdered. Well, and that's something that they can they can see. Yeah. And they also tested her, like, family acquaintances and everything. Yeah. Nothing. Like, the DNA was not theirs. Yeah. Also, over the objections of the defense... Stark allowed the prosecution to suggest that the electronic home monitoring ankle bracelet that Rivera was wearing uh, may have malfunctioned or that Rivera might somehow have slipped out of it to commit the crime. Sure, you just slip those right off. Yeah, you know, they're easy to just pop off. Right over the heel, no problem. Yeah, there was no evidence to support either theory. Yeah. And his ankle bracelet functioned properly shortly before and shortly after the crime. So I'm pretty sure it functioned right during the crime. Yeah. Another factor in his third conviction was a false claim by the prosecution that his confession contained things that only the killer would know and things that were even unknown to the investigators themselves. On the witness stand, Lucian S. Tessman, who was a retired Waukegan police sergeant and who was one of Rivera's principal interrogators, he testified that some facts in the con- in the confession were not known to him until Rivera revealed them. Oh. The defense had evidence proving that every accurate fact in the confession was known to the police and that most of the information had been reported by the media. Oh, yeah. Yeah, literally the police are saying like, oh, well, some of the stuff wasn't known to us. Yes, it fucking was. Well, if the media Everything reported that's it, true everyone knows in the it. case, everyone knows. But Stark refused to let the jury hear that evidence. The evidence that would show that the police are lying. What? Yeah. Stark also refused to allow the defense to call expert witnesses to explain how interrogation techniques that were used against Rivera have led many suspects in other cases to confess to crimes they didn't commit. Well, it's... Yeah. Yeah. Like, they're, those are the tactics used for coerced confession. Yeah. So this expert testimony would have been that suspects of below normal intelligence tend to be susceptible to suggestion and manipulation, deferential to authority, and prone to confabulation, which is a combination that renders statements that they make under stress completely unreliable. On May 8th, the jury found Rivera guilty despite the exculpatory DNA evidence. Again? Again. A third time he's convicted. Three times. Yep. Oh, my God. And on June 25th of 2009, Judge Stark, who's been the judge in all three trials... Of course. ...sentenced Rivera to life in prison for the third time. Oh, my God. Yeah. On what? On... The, The thing he signed the second time. The thing he signed the second time... The fact that, well, possibly he could have broken and then fixed or maybe slipped out of his ankle monitor. No. Literally, they oh don't my have God. A, The DNA is not... It, yeah. It's not his. They don't have valid evidence. I'm, yeah. No. Yeah. So, Stanford University law professor Lawrence C. Marshall 
who was the co-founder of the Center of, on Wrongful Convictions in mm-hmm. 1999, mm-hmm. was the lead lawyer for the appeal on Rivera's third conviction and sought to appeal his conviction again. Yes. So he's he was the lead and he's like, nah, no, 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 no. You may have been convicted a third time, but we're not doing this. We're not doing this. Nope. So among the issues that were raised on appeal were whether the evidence had been sufficient to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. Whether Rivera had been denied his right to present a defense when Stark refused to allow the defense to present evidence rebuting the false claim of the police that Rivera knew facts only the perpetrator would have known. Right, which I'm still wanting to know what those facts were, yeah. what he supposedly knew. I I couldn't find them, but uh, yeah, but yeah, they're saying like, like oh, only only uh, only the police knew, and some of us we didn't even know these. And what was true was fucking reported and known by the police. Finally, exactly. whether his confessions should have been suppressed on the grounds that they were involuntary because he was having a psychotic break during the confessions that he signed. Absolutely. The fact that the first confession made no fucking sense and the attorney was like, go back, make sure you cover this, this, and this. And they did. And he was like, oh, okay. Yeah. But you had him in this, you know, heightened mental state. Yeah. And that is not a position to be in to sign something that's truthful. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just literally wanting people to leave you alone and yeah. get out of your hair. And Absolutely. so you'll do whatever it takes for that to happen so you can have your moment. And yeah. you're going through something at that time. The last thing you want is someone to be coming up to you telling you to fucking sign something. Well, and the, Saying it's true. These interrogation techniques, they're not... The fucking, like, the stuff you see on Law and Order or on 24 or whatever. It's just more things like investigators being like, oh, do you have a family? Do you want to take care of them? I can make sure they're taken care of. Do you have things you you care about? Do you have things you want taken care of? Like, we we can do that for you. Like, it, it's, it's fucking right. horrible shit. It is. In December of 2011, the appellate court of Illinois ruled that the conviction could not stand, and it was overturned. Oh my god, the appellate court can't decide what they think. Yeah. Just saying. So, their opinion chastised the I like pro- I like this one, but they For keep real, though, going they back and forth, back yeah. and forth, flip-flopping. So, their opinion chastised the prosecution for advancing highly improbable theories that distorted the evidence to an absurd degree at the trial. Rivera had suffered the nightmare of wrongful incarceration. Oh my god. Yeah. And on January 6th of 2012, Waller announced that the state would dismiss the charges. Finally! It's been, what, 20 years? Juan Rivera had served 20 years in prison. Oh my god. Yeah. For something he didn't do. For something he did not do. So following his release... Rivera, wow. I'm sorry. 20 years. No, 20 years of I his mean, life. I mean, mine was 13 and that's a shit ton. 20 is more. 20, Obviously, that's how numbers work. I it know. is. But, but 20 years ago, I was five. I literally barely have memories from 20 years ago. Could you imagine? Sorry, take a dark moment. Five to 25. Yeah. Spending that entire Spending time in prison. prison. Or if I went to prison right now. 
and walked out when I was 45. How much of life I have missed. And he was 19. God, he missed when so he much. He missed so was, much of his life. And he got he out went at 39 from being and that's so basically different. a fucking kid. Yes. To now he's an older a adult. 40 year old man. Yeah. Like he's, he should be in the middle of his adult that's not life. Old, but. So, following his release, Rivera received a certificate of innocence and $213,600 in state compensation, which is nothing for the time he lost and the shit he had to fucking go through this entire fucking time. I'm sorry, you divide that by 20 and that's what? Uh, uh 10000 a year? That's, you can't yeah. even live on that. No. You, so, oh, he deserves yeah. so much more. Well, in October of 2012, he filed a federal wrongful conviction lawsuit Good. against Lake County law enforcement officials, alleging that they framed him. I mean, they did! So, some more evidence that his attorneys asked the court to look at yeah. was they asked him to order genetic testing on his shoes, which the prosecution had tried to enter into evidence in 1993 in the first trial. Right. The shoes had Staker's blood on them, but the prosecution withdrew the evidence prior to Rivera's first trial when it was discovered that the shoes were not available for sale anywhere in the United States until after the murder. So they said, we have his shoes with blood on them. We want to enter these in the trial. But he couldn't have ever had them. But he couldn't have had them during... And they were his shoes. They were his shoes that the police had obtained as evidence. And now they have her blood on it. So there is no way that he could have had them before the murder. Did they put the blood on them? Well, DNA testing conducted on the shoes in 2015 indicated that the blood was indeed from Holly. Mm -hmm. But it also contained another genetic sample. Okay. One that matched the semen sample. What? So Rivera's defense team insisted that this was proof not only that the blood was planted... But the, the real killer's DNA was planted as well. Oh my god. So they put blood from her and semen from the actual killer on his, yeah, shoes, on his shoes to frame him. Mm-hmm. And only when Stop. the shoes were found to, oh, he couldn't have had those at the time, did they not put them in the trial. Oh, oh yeah. my god. Oh yeah. The DNA has yet to be matched to any individual. Also, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt. Just a super side moment where my head's going... Can you think about being someone who has to, like, search the evidence and whatnot and having to have the thought of, oh, wait, when did these shoes come out? Because it's one of those things that to us seems so obvious, but to someone who's doing the research may not be the most obvious thing. It could be something that could clearly come up after the fact, which seems as if that's what happened. Mm Mm-hmm. And thank God that he just so happened to have new fucking shoes. I know. Or else that would have been brought to to the trial. So, this DNA from the semen has yet to be matched from any individual. Oh. But it has been linked to DNA that was found at another home invasion and murder. Okay. And the man who was convicted of that crime also claims he was wrongly convicted. So, so did they test the DNA against DNA for him? Or? I'm assuming so. I couldn't find yes huh. or no, but I'm assuming yes. And so this person could also be in there wrongly convicted. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of this fucking, I guess at this point, serial 
murderers. Oh my god. Yeah. So this lawsuit was settled in March of 2015 for $20 million. Whoa. Which at the time was the largest settlement for wrongful conviction in the in U.S. history. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah. This which amount, I can see why, like my guy, he was like thirty mil, and they're like, nope. Yeah. So this amount which is inc- not fair, but no. This amount included two million dollars from the from John E. Reed and Associates, who were known for the Reed technique of questioning suspects. Oh and my god! This technique has been widely criticized for its history of eliciting confessions that were later determined to be completely false. Yeah. Rivera was questioned twice at Reed headquarters by an employee of the company during his interrogation. Yeah. You know, the interrogation lasted several days. Uh Uh-huh. Which is insane. And while his results from the polygraph test that he took at Reed were inconclusive, Mm -hmm. employee Michael Masokas told Rivera that he had failed. Oh, it was inconclusive. And they were like, you failed, man. You failed. Oh my God. When speaking about the settlement, Rivera said, no amount of money could ever sum up to 20 years in prison. Yeah. I live my life always looking behind my back. Oh my God. I don't blame him. No. He spent more time in prison than he did out out of prison. Because he was 19 when he went in. I can't. That's, no. I hate that stat. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. It's fucking horrible. And well, and the fact that there was nothing pointing to him doing this. No. There was the fact that another inmate said that he said this, and then under this long-ass interrogation, he confessed. After, un- under, like, mental duress. Yeah. And then what? What was the evidence that linked him in any fucking way? Nothing. 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 The, the fact that he was easy to point at and convict, yeah. and I hate that. Well, this, I'm glad he's out, but I'm glad God. he's out. But these two cases that we went over today are just two of the thousands and thousands and thousands of cases of yeah. people that are currently in jail, wrongfully convicted yep. through misconduct, through just complete incompetence. Through fucking malice on the part of the prosecution team. Yeah. Through um, the defense team just not having their resources. Especially, especially in the case of public defenders that just do not have the time and resources that they should have to provide to these defendants. Well, because they have like an overbearing caseload and like, no. I think I read something, I cannot remember where... But it looked into a public defender's day. Yeah. And the caseload he had, the number of defendants he had, and he was able to spend like 19 minutes per person. That was it. That was all the time he had as a public defender. Because we don't fucking fund this. We're going to send all our fucking money to the prison system rather than the public defenders who could, if they had. I was... If they had a fucking hour, could prove innocence. Yeah. But they we don't, don't give a shit time. because we have a private prison system that makes money off how many people we have in prison. So, yeah, yeah we want them to take the plea deal. That's what you want to do. And we convince so many of these people that are wrongly convicted that are like, well, you could, uh, if you go to trial, you get the death penalty or you could take this plea bargain and go away for 20 years. And they're like, I didn't do it, but... 
But I'll, guess take I'll take 20 over, over life. Yeah. That's not fair. It's That's not fair. And the criminal justice system is one that is so fucking broken. And it is so... It's so disgusting how many people are mistreated on every side of it. Yes. It's insanely disgusting. Do you um, want to jump into postmortem? Yeah, I do. I think I want to call this one. Um, I think I you won. Really? I do. I do. Because the things that he went through, and I mean, not that we're comparing years to years, but 20 more than he was like living before the time. And also that he was convicted of rape and murder of an 11-year-old. Yeah. And his mental breakdown and how they coerced him into into this. And um, Cam, while also wrongfully convicted, he, there wasn't the coercion. It was more so blame. See, I completely disagree with you. I really? think you won. Because Cam lost his entire family. And he had the court tell the world multiple times he was molesting his daughter. And that's, he murdered his family because he didn't want to be caught for this. Or he was cheating on his wife with dozens of women. So he murdered his family so he wouldn't be caught for that. And just that when he came out of prison, he lost his immediate family. He lost Kim's entire side of the family, which... From what it sounds like with how Kim's family was so involved in their church, in their community. Of course, yeah. He lost his church. He lost lost his his community. community. So as much as Juan Rivera was such a miscarriage of justice and had so much against him, I think he won. I can see that after you listed it out. These were both horrifying cases. And picking one... To be uh, more severe than the other is not easy, but no, I'll, I'll take the win. I just, I just think for granted, uh, they both went through just unspeakable, just unmentionable, even yeah. horrible things, and were victims the entire way. But they were. I just think Cam, he came out and had no one, it's whereas. True. When Juan was released, you know, his mother was by his side. He had. He had the support. Yeah. And I guess Cam Cam did have his family. He had his family, but but he he, still lost everything. He had his extended family, but he didn't have his family, his wife, his children. They were dead. Right. And they'd been dead for 13 years. He couldn't go to their fucking funeral. I know. I can't. I still can't believe that. They gave him five minutes to say goodbye to his wife, son, and daughter. He's going to spend the rest of his life saying goodbye to them. Yeah. Yeah, he will. But, so, yeah. well, um, this was a crazy, intense episode, as yeah. we like to do, as of recent. Apparently, so. Granted, I can't. Nothing I can't could not think be back to any easy episode. No, we've never think... had one. They're not easy. No, they're never easy. Easy but and our topic don't go together. They don't. But I do think our the past handful of episodes have been fucking rough. Yeah. On that note, I'm just going to jump into it. Be sure to rate and review us on yes. iTunes. Really appreciate it. We do so much. I... We want to hear what you guys think. We want to know your thoughts. Um, just please, it takes just a moment. If you don't want to write a review, that's fine. Just go ahead Absolutely. and give us the stars. 
uh, give us a five-star review and we'll uh, forever be in debt to you. And even literally if you have suggestions, if you have anything you want to let us know, write us on Patreon, Instagram, Facebook, Yep. Our email, Twitter, literally any way you send it to us, we're going to pretty instantly know or pretty instantly see it because yeah. we have all that shit good off phone. Well, and our email is bloodandwinepodcast at gmail.com. The yes. A-N-D is spelled out. Yes, it is. Um, on Twitter, it's bloodandwinepod. Facebook, it's Blood and Wine, a true crime podcast. Yes. And Patreon, same name. So just find us, engage with us. We we love the engagement and conversing we have with y'all on yeah. our platforms. It's it's great. Hearing from y'all and just like the just for example, the fucking connection we built with Dawn. Yes. Who directed the last episode, who sponsored the wine in this episode, who is someone who I'm like Oh my god damn. You're amazing. Like she's Your an incredible amazing. person and someone who I'm just like I'm I'm amazed at. But like I fucking love you, Don. And Yes, we do. And that so this much. relationship has been built on you know just us emailing with her and us getting to know her, her getting and to know she us. Listens. And I just uh Well, and if y'all have topic ideas or things you'd like to hear, please send us an email. We'd love it. We love taking listener suggestions, and it Mm -hmm. helps us determine topics for the weeks to follow. But, yeah. Well, on that, thank y'all so much for listening. Yes, thank you. XOXO. Blood and wine signing off. Bye. Bye.